0: Welcome to 90.7 WEHC and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and we've got a special guest today and Carly's going to introduce them shortly but we've been talking about the concept of women in leadership at the academy from a feminist perspective so we've been having various guests on and we are excited today to have something that I'm not really that familiar with so listeners if you hear me and you say that's a dumb question Our guest has assured me that there are no dumb questions, so so work with us on that. But Carly, would you introduce our guest for today? Yes,
1: so we're very excited to have with us today my colleague and friend, Dr. Lauren Harding. Um, She's a student success coach with me in the Office of Student Success here at Emory & Henry, And she has a doctorate of musical arts and she's an accomplished horn player. So we're gonna talk a little bit about um, music from a feminist perspective, women in music. And that is also something I don't know a lot about. So I'm excited to learn today. And I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Harding to talk a little bit more about herself.
2: Yes, well thank you for that um, lovely introduction. Uh, yes, I am uh, Dr. Lauren Harding. I started as a student success coach at Emory Henry College August 2nd, so I have been here. This is my second semester now. I did grow up in the area. I was born in Kingsport, Tennessee, and that's where I currently live right now, but I have lived in Castlewood, St. Paul, Virginia, Abingdon, Virginia, Bristol, Tennessee, so I've been all over Southwest Virginia and East Tennessee. And I'm thrilled to have come back home and be a part of the um, Emory & Henry family and be on staff here. A little more about my background. Um, I went to the University of Tennessee and I was a music performance major there. I gigged around as they say, and gigging is just uh, taking jobs as they come and performing at churches and local orchestras, teaching private lessons. And then I went to West Virginia University to get my master's in music, where I was a graduate teaching assistant for the Horn Studio. I did quite a lot of gigging around, as they say there. I taught quite a lot of students. And then I started focusing more on the academy, going to more conferences, applying to perform for the Horn Studio to uh, perform at those conferences as well. And then I went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City for my DMA, that is a doctorate of the musical arts. And I um, completed my degree during the pandemic, like a lot of our students here at Emory. I was a pandemic student and I completed in May of 2020. So I am proud of myself for doing that, but I will admit that completing my research was quite hard during the pandemic and there were days it was difficult to concentrate. But I'm thrilled that I was able to do that and move on to the next part of my life. Um, My role in the area as a classically trained musician, I do play with the Johnson City Symphony Orchestra. I am one of the horn players in that group. I am currently slated to play for the March concert. I don't quite remember those dates, but we do have a March concert coming up and we do have an April concert coming up as well. And then I've gigged around in the area I played with Knoxville Symphony. I'm going to be playing with Knoxville Opera pretty soon here. I've played with Symphony of the Mountains. And I've just really enjoyed coming back home. I never really thought I would be able to have a career in classical music uh, where I grew up, but I've made it work. And um, working in the academy during the day and being a musician at night, that's kind of my life right now. And I'm actually thrilled that I'm able to do that, especially during this time of COVID-19 and the the state of our world right now.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think trying to do your research for your doctorate during COVID was really difficult. And I'm assuming that also impacted your gig money, right? Because you weren't able to to go anywhere and play.
2: Yes, a lot of orchestras did shut down some of their um, operations. So if you were a contract musician, which meant you were just asked to play on one concert or a couple of concerts, then a lot of that work didn't happen there's there can be a difference between being a contract musician which you're only asked to play for one concert or a couple and there's no strings tying you to that organization. And there are also some other orchestras where you're either a part-time member or a full-time member. And that could affect whether you get benefits or not, um, full-time benefits or part-time benefits playing with that group. Dr.
0: Harding, I wonder about the path. Are the paths different for women than they are for men in con- in concert Um orchestra or whatever the correct term is, Do, do you see a lot of women versus a lot of men or is it equally distributed and are the paths, I know they're varied, but are they different for women?
2: The paths are still very different for women. And I would also say based off of instrument family, it's very different. My instrument is French horn and it's just referred to as horn in general. So being a horn player, there are quite a few females in horn sections in orchestras. And if you were to be contracted to play in a group, it's it's about 50-50, I will say. Now, there are other brass instruments that are low brass instruments, which means you play in the bass clef or your instrument is pitched lower, a lot of the times when young boys or young females or just a young student who might not identify as a certain gender, they may be pushed towards um, a certain gendered instrument. So like a um, identifying young female might not be pushed towards the tuba or the trombone. They may be pushed towards the flute, which is a more feminine instrument. And that kind of goes, Way, way back to when being a suitable wife, you had to have certain talents and certain skills. So maybe playing the piano or maybe playing the flute or singing, that was something that you would do. But you would never play the cello because you had to put the cello between your legs. And that was not very ladylike. You might not play a brass instrument because, well, you're a female and you cannot use the same amount of air. You just can't produce the amount of air that should be Used and I I will say that some of that unconscious bias and some might be conscious bias some band directors do have for their young students so they may push some of their um, female students or even some of their smaller bodied. Um, students in general to a lighter, smaller instrument, and their bigger students to a bigger instrument, which actually, there's no research that supports that in any way. It's not how much air you have or how big you are, it's how you use your air and you use your body.
1: Yeah, that's actually perfectly in line with one of the articles I read in preparation for today from DePaulOnline.com, from DePaul University, basically talking about how um, people see the instruments in a very gendered way, and that that impacts women in music deeply and um, people from any marginalized gender. And one of the people in the article, her name is Kate Warren, she's a lecturer and her lecture is called Female Brass Players Don't Exist. And she said the way to change the future of um, brass music is to have equal opportunity at a young age for all genders and races to choose any instrument they want to and play without preconceptions. She added that we must educate educators about breaking gender roles in the music classroom. And I just thought that was really cool.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, if we really want to make everything equal, we need to educate our elementary and middle school educators um, that teach music about anyone, any shape, size, they can play any instrument, and um, you know their setup may look a little different. The equipment that they use, like their mouthpiece, could look a little bit different. But that's not to say that they can't that they can't do it at all. I will say, in classical music, specifically auditioning for orchestras, the musicians' union that AFM, American Federation of Musicians. I think that that's the correct acronym. Way back, maybe in the 60s or 70s, they started to have blind auditions, which meant the panel that was judging the auditions, there's a sheet up and they cannot see you. And I've actually been to auditions where there is either a rug or some sheets or towels taped to the floor of the hall that you're performing in, so they can't listen to how heavy your steps are. They can't hear if you're wearing heels or not, which could sway them um, one way or another and when they started having blind auditions particularly in the united states females started winning jobs in orchestras and not just any job like a principal job which means you're the leader of the section and you play either a higher part or you play more of the solo lines one of the more famous horn players um, in the classical music world julie landsman she won the principal horn audition for the Metropolitan Opera and that is a big coveted job and she won that in the 70s and when you listen to interviews that she's a part of she talks about how a lot of her male colleagues were not very happy for her to be there and so she had to be even better than them and she knew that at some point they would leave and um, she would still be there so she just kind of played her horn showed up did her job and waited for her male colleagues to get with it, because she was there, and she was going to be there.
0: Yeah, you, you you don't think, or I shouldn't say, generally, people don't think about how a patriarchal influence could, you know, it seems to me like music would just be music, and I know there's different types of music, and and I'm definitely not versed in the various types, uh, and here we are talking about classical with that, but you just wonder how, how, how that happens and continues to happen because even when you think about like composers and i don't know but whenever i see master composers or something they're almost always male i mean how does that happen is it just built in to the system that says we can't have women and the only thing that's changing that are things like you just shared with us you know the blind i know they're doing that in theater now too they're doing those kinds of things to help people from an ethnic and a race perspective. And, and I want to ask you about that too, Lauren, you know, when you start talking about who these musicians are, like who your colleagues are, um, what's the, the ethnicity of your colleagues also?
2: Well, um, I will say that classical music is whitewashed. That is a fact, that's not opinion, it is whitewashed. If you look at the roster of um, orchestras on the internet, uh, there are very few um, individuals of color. And there are also different races that are stereotyped for different instruments. Say if someone is, uh, they have an Asian background in their family or they look like they might be Asian, oh, they should play piano or strings. If someone has a darker skin color, that might mean that they have bigger lips. Oh, they should play tuba. There are some stereotypes that just just aren't true. But you know, unconscious bias. That's what you know when you're in sixth grade or even younger. When maybe when you start Suzuki violin, you might be four or five, and you have no idea about this stuff. You just may be starting your instrument because your parents want you to. So um, you're just going to do what your what the instrument that's put in front of you. You really have no control because you have to start so young to be so good on these instruments. And there's quite a lot of privilege in classical music. My instrument is handmade and it costs $11,000 and that's cheap for um, an instrument family. That's on par for a professional French horn. That's a double horn. That's what I play. A string instrument, Those, the ones that professional musicians play, they are hundreds of years old because as the wood ages, it becomes more resonant. So how in the world do you get your hands on a 100-year-old violin? The real answer is it's very hard and oftentimes you can't the professional musicians that are landing a top five orchestral job, a lot of the times their instrument is actually owned by a museum and they play the instrument like a cello or a violin. I do know that the Library of Congress has a string quartet set of um, Stradivarius instruments. So they would have, it's called a Strad. Um, They shorten that. They have two violins, a viola, and a
0: cello, I believe. When you said that, I got a visual. When you said, like, get your hands on it, I got a visual of some of the biases that people have about certain people and who can touch something and who's dirty. And when you were saying that, all of those things just came flooding into my head. And I thought, boy, that runs deep. It resonated very, very early on. And I can remember, I think I tried to play the flute and I can remember being told, Maybe you want to try another instrument, you know. And, and I'm in an all white elementary school, and, and I'm thinking it's all my parents can do to get a flute. Do you know what I'm saying? There's nothing else that we can even think about getting for me to play, you know. I mean, that and that wasn't that was it, but you know, you, you think about all those behind the scenes things, and, and that just gave me a, like a yuck feeling, uh, yeah. Dr. Harding, when that happened, because I, I just felt that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sorry that that happened. I mean, I had no control over that, but I just it upsets me when I do hear these stories because we're all ambassadors of whatever field that we have. And people's decisions affect us in our field and what people feel about the certain organizations that we're with. And I do know that a lot of people my generation don't want to go to uh, classical music concerts because they don't feel welcome, because they don't have the right clothes to wear, Um, They may not have the money, and they don't know when and where to clap, so a lot of them feel unwelcome because of stories like that, so um, I'm so sorry that that happened, and I hope that individuals are changing that.
1: Yeah, I know that, you know, you and I have talked, Lauren, you know, about classism in, in classical music and how you're right. I mean, it is preventative for some people to even get involved in it. And you mentioned that um, to be a very talented musician that you have to get started young more than likely. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, how you got involved and why do you think that is that you need to get involved so young?
2: Well, I got involved. Um, my mom is a very really good pianist. She was a church pianist for a long time. We actually went to Pleasant View United Methodist Church when I lived in Abingdon. So connections to the area. And she was a pianist there. She was a nurse by day and a pianist. You know, Wednesday nights, choir rehearsal. And then, you know, Sunday morning. We never missed Sunday. You know, she had to be there. So uh, that's how I got started. I played piano, which is not uncommon, especially in Europe. A lot of um, little kids will start out on piano and you learn to read music. And then um, in the United States around fifth or sixth grade, that's when you decide to join band or choir and you may pick up um, an instrument there. And then I was I actually used a school instrument until I was a senior in high school um so I didn't have my own professional instrument until I was a senior and it did hold me back but also it made me appreciate that your equipment yes it has something to do with how good you sound but your musicality and your passion and um your ability to feel good about making your own music has nothing to do with your instrument but I did notice when I got a um an intermediate, more professional instrument. It was in today's money, probably about four or $5,000. It did make a difference, but, um, I was still just as musical and still love music just as much.
1: Yeah. And I mean, those, even those costs, like you said, an intermediate one costs like $5,000. I mean, that's, that's huge for a lot of people. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, that could definitely prevent people from really being able to feel like they're able to be competitive. Um, Cause I know that music is also competition, right? Because you're trying to buy for spots and um, make sure that you get a, a spot in the orchestra and things like that. So that's, that's tough. Yeah.
2: I do remember the year I got my own horn. I got it in like October or something like that to prepare for Allstate East auditions in Tennessee. That's kind of like the district auditions in Virginia. And um, my parents were like, no, no, this was a lot of money. And we want you to know that this is your Christmas present, but you're just getting it early. So you have time to practice. And I said, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And then on Christmas morning, I had my instrument for like two months and my dad put it under the Christmas tree <laughs> with all of our presents. And I woke up one morning, you know, and my brother and sister had all of these gifts, which was fine, but I had my instrument and that was okay too. And um, I know that my parents made, you know, a big sacrifice to get me that instrument. And I mean, I will say in this area, you know, my parents were very much middle-class. My Both of my parents worked. Um, but when I started going to school, especially when I went to UMKC, which is classified as a conservatory, which is a performance emphasis uh, program where you're playing, where you're at that school to become the best performer you can be. My eyes were open to the amount of privilege um, that a lot of students had. And I will tell you being from Appalachia and going to a four-year state school and for my undergrad and a four-year state school for my master's, I was looked down upon quite a bit from my peers and from some of the faculty and staff at those institutions. Mm -hmm. So in the area, I I did have privilege. But when I got into the bigger world of classical music, um, I did not have the privilege that a lot of individuals had. And there was quite a lot of white privilege and um, classism. You know, students thought, well, why don't, why can't you have a $20,000 instrument? They just didn't realize that it's not a thing that people just magically have. Mm-hmm. And when I bought my professional grade instrument, which is a, I don't know if any would know, but a Patterson Geyer wrap, that's what I play on, it is a handmade instrument. And I actually took out student loans to pay for it because my parents, um, I didn't want to ask them for the money and my brother and sister were going to school at the time. So I decided that that was something that I needed to take on and I did take out student loans to get my instrument.
0: This is a whole new world, Dr. Harding. And for me, I'm just thinking about all these kinds of things as you're saying things, even, you know, being a, I guess you're white passing or white presenting Mm -hmm. and then the whole class situation and then the whole regional thing like Appalachia, how they see all of us from Appalachia. So you were probably looked at as an anomaly. And that gets me to thinking about the only, I think sometimes about when we are the only, and I think sometimes privileged people don't experience that. And yet here you've had an opportunity, even if you weren't the only, you were kind of one of the few people, you know, from Appalachia and maybe from Appalachia without money because you can be Appalachian rich. We, I can name some off now <laughs> that are Appalachian rich and could have the $20,000 horn just like that and all that. But just to be middle class, uh, you know, that, that puts a different spin on when you're sitting there listening to music. That, that was another thing I was going to ask you. Knowing the music is important. Like I know for me, what keeps me out is that I don't know the music and I haven't been introduced to it anywhere along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, folk music, I could handle that, you know, rhythm and blues, I could handle, you know, all that, but classical music, I would not recognize it. I like listening to it, but the, the love affair with it, I would have to have someone teach me how to lo- fall in love
2: with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, there's a lot of information that you need to know about classical music as you're listening to it, because the way that we present classical music, you have to know quite a lot before you show up to a performance. And I will say that iTunes and Spotify are not set up very well to let you know if the artist that's listed is the composer versus the performer. So there is some cleaning up that iTunes and Spotify need to do. In the classical music community, a lot of people hate (laughs) those apps because it doesn't, if you're trying to look up a recording from say New York Philharmonic, depending on how it's listed um, and the genre that it's listed as, it might not come up in the right way. So um, and I do know that classical music concerts, specifically live music, are not very friendly for people who are not in the know. There's not a lot of information that's available and there's not when conductors maybe talk before a performance, they may say some useful things, but it's not geared towards this is your first time concert, they're saying things and making jokes about stuff you should already know. And they just think, well, you should just know this. But not everybody knows about Beethoven's life. Not everybody knows about Mozart's life. And actually, the well-behaved middle class composer that was pushed during the 50s and 60s to create the stereotype of composer that we think of today, that actually was not true. Mozart was an alcoholic. He died in debt. Beethoven, he was not pleasant to be around, especially when he started to go deaf, which happened in the later part of his life. And it's written that he smelled bad. He like didn't take a bath or something like that. So a lot of these things about classical music that we have created it being, you know, the music for the educated, that's definitely a myth. And we don't set up classical music in a way that's accessible to all people, regardless of how much you may know or might not know. And I realized I forgot to answer one of the questions about female composers. So this is where the patriarchy comes through. Female composers by and large are not studied at higher ed institutions. They're just, they're not studied. In all of my classical music or Western music, music theory and music history classes, we studied just a handful of female composers. And part of that is being a composer was not a women's field in the 17, 1800s, which is like the heyday of Western classical music. But there's some composer worshiping that's going on. Orchestras in the U.S. and in Europe, by and large, don't program new music. And now there's more female composers, more composers of color than ever. And big orchestras, just they just don't program them. I'm not exactly sure about why that's taking place. I don't know if that's a familiarity thing or if it's a risk. They're afraid that their patrons won't attend concerts. If it's new music, they're just sticking to the tried and true Beethoven, Mozart. And while that keeps some generations in the concert halls, it does not keep new people coming in. And so the classical music audience and the performers who are getting jobs, they're aging. And that classical music does need to do a better job at being more inclusive, bringing in more composers and making sure that the genre is keeping up with where the world is going and actually what the world looks like. Because composers and performers on stage, they don't look like what the rest of the world does. It's just whitewashed.
1: I um, That's perfectly in line with uh, a little bit of the research that I did um, for this episode. According to classicfm.com of the world's top orchestras um, so this is you know worldwide, 88 percent of the concerts featured only music written by men, and only 1.1 percent of the scheduled pieces were written by any women of color. So I mean, I, that shows you too that's like they're just not playing those pieces. Um,
2: yeah. I, I will say as a performer, I am more aware aware of the pieces that I perform the past year when I performed. Solo for conferences. Now, all of this was remote. Um, I think maybe two out of the three pieces that I played were by female composers. And that's just something that I want to do as a performer now when I perform solo. I was a good student and I performed all the classics. But when I got to my doctoral program, I had an oh no moment when I realized that me as a female, I had never performed or programmed a female composer on any of my degree recitals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is something that I needed to be more aware of, and you know, nobody questioned that either. Which is, you have to get your program approved by either the graduate committee or by your professor, who is um, your main instructor. And nobody questioned it at all. Nobody said anything, and I was playing all the classics like a good little horn student. But really, that <laughs> if yeah, if you think about what you want your music to say. And how you want to use your music to enlighten other people and as a gift for other people and the people who write the music. I decided a long time ago, after the Me Too movement, that I needed to be programming more female composers.
0: And so that means
2: now when I look at um, performing at a another college, or if I look at solo competitions I might compete in, if there's no female brass faculty, or if there aren't any female composers listed on the repertoire list, that's not something that I'm going to be doing, because that's not what I want to dedicate my time to.
0: Lauren, I know we're running out of time, and I have two questions, and maybe when you come back,
2: you can answer those, but uh,
0: uh, you kind of answered most of it already. How do we change the narrative? That was one of the things, and then in changing the narrative, how... Could you see um, a small liberal arts college like ours, introducing this to the masses I mean here we are a big diversity push, but with that diversity push should come this other way of educating. Are there any strategies that you see that we could employ I know we're out of time right I'm sure we are. <laughs> and just answer it shortly if you can and then the next time.
2: <laughs> well. Um- I'll answer the second part of your question. I forgot the first part. And so I'll just go ahead and answer the second part and then I'll answer the first part. So what we can do at Emory & Henry, I think that we need to, you know, when we bring groups in specifically for classical music, which we bring maybe one or two in a semester, I see, uh, we need to make sure that we're bringing in um, inclusive groups. There's um, Imani Winds, which is a wind quintet, which is um, horn, flute, clarinet, oboe, and bassoon. And they are an inclusive group. Um, They look like what the United States looks like in population. And they are a fantastic ensemble. They are world class. So as an institution, we just need to be aware of the people that we invite um, to speak or perform. We need to make sure that um, they're one, promoting inclusion and diversity. But also, you know, they need to represent what our student population looks like as well. And um, it's it's very difficult for students of color when I've gotten the feedback when they're studying and their professors are only white and they're only male and they may be a, a female student of color and or they might not affiliate with any specific gender. They may have them they pronouns. And so being mindful of the type of groups that we promote and bring here is something that I think ENH could do that's great and the first part of my
0: question you'd already answered most of it was changing the narrative so that was both the same question just i just did not make it clear but yeah but thanks a million and carly i guess you're going to end this but i don't want to end i want to keep talking
1: i know we say this every week but 30 minutes is just not enough time and there's so much that you know i've learned just in these past 30 minutes so i really appreciate dr harding being with us today it was wonderful to have you here And um, next week we will have uh, Jennifer Pierce, who is our vice president for marketing communications and admissions here at Emory & Henry to talk about a little bit about her experience as a leader um, on this campus. So we're really excited to hear from her and we hope you all will join us um, for that conversation. But thank you all for being here. It was wonderful. And um, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.